As Nathan mentioned, the reading is chapter 2 in the book of Haggai, which is towards the end of the Old Testament, and in the Church Bibles, it's page 948. It's 948. On the 21st day of the seventh month, the word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai. Speak to Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, to Joshua, son of Jehoshadak, the high priest, and to the remnant of the people. Ask them, who of you is left who saw this house in its former glory? How does it look to you now? Does it not seem to you like nothing? But now be strong, Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Be strong, Joshua, son of Jehoshadak, the high priest. Be strong, all you people of the land, declares the Lord, and work. For I am with you, declares the Lord Almighty. This is what I covenanted with you when you came out of Egypt, and my spirit remains among you. Do not fear. This is what the Lord Almighty says. In a little while, I will once more shake the heavens and the earth, the sea and the dry land. I will shake all nations, and what is desired by all nations will come, and I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord Almighty. The silver is mine and the gold is mine, declares the Lord Almighty. The glory of this present house will be greater than the glory of the former house, says the Lord Almighty. And in this place I will grant peace, declares the Lord Almighty. On the 24th day of the ninth month, in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Haggai. This is what the Lord Almighty says. Ask the priests what the law says if someone carries consecrated meat in the fold of their garment and that fold touches some bread or stew, some wine, olive oil or other food, does it become consecrated? The priest answered, no. Then Haggai said, if a person defiled by contact with a dead body touches one of these things, does it become defiled? Yes, the priests replied, it becomes defiled. Then Haggai said, so it is with this people and this nation in my sight, declares the Lord. Whatever they do and whatever they offer there is defiled. Now give careful thought to this from this day on. Consider how things were before one stone was laid on another in the Lord's temple. When anyone came to a heap of 20 measures, there were only 10. When anyone went to a wine vat to draw 50 measures, there were only 20. I struck all the work of your hands with blight, mildew, and hail. Yet you did not return to me, declares the Lord. From this day on, from this 24th day of the ninth month, give careful thought 
to the day when the foundation of the Lord's temple was laid. Give careful thought. Is there yet any seed left in the barn? Until now, the vine and the fig tree, the pomegranate and the olive tree have not borne fruit. From this day on, I will bless you. The word of the Lord came to Haggai a second time on the 24th day of the month. Tell Zerubbabel, governor of Judah, that I am going to shake the heavens and the earth. I will overturn royal thrones and shatter the power of the foreign kingdoms. I will overthrow chariots and their drivers. Horses and their riders will fall, each by the sword of his brother. On that day, declares the Lord Almighty, I will take you, my servant Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, declares the Lord, and I will make you like my signet ring, for I have chosen you, declares the Lord Almighty. Good evening, it's good to be with you. My name is Colin Jones, and like my good friend Tim who was preaching this morning, I'm a member here. Those of you that know me um, will possibly groan, um, but certainly not be surprised that I'm going to mention a coin once, <laughs> only once, and I'm going to mention a recent trip to Israel, only once. And both of them, I feel justified in including. So let's get the first one out of the way. Those of you that like touching old things, this is the oldest coin in my collection. It's 2,500 years old, which is older, I think, than any of us here by a bit. And it's called a Siglos, and it was knocking around somewhere during the reign of Darius, who is the key figure at the beginning um, of Haggai chapters 1 and 2. It, it was King Darius who allowed the people to return to their land and to begin the rebuilding of the temple. So if you want to hold something 2,500 years old, come and have a word with me after, and you're welcome to do so. So, when we start chapter 2, I haven't had a chance to listen, my apologies, Steve, to your message from last week. Um, just been too busy this week, but when we come to, to chapter 2, it, it begins quite discouragingly, uh, and it does brighten up immensely towards the end. But what we read is that it begins with a kind of depression almost. Uh, the, the word of the Lord uh, comes to Zerubbabel, to Shealtiel, uh, to Jozadak, uh, and to the whole people. Uh, and there's a question, who is left who saw this house in its former glory? 
They, they have already, in less than a month, become discouraged. What is sometimes described as the honeymoon period is over, um, when pastors meet together in secret conclave that they call a fraternal. Sometimes you'll hear uh, pastors saying, oh, I'm still in my honeymoon period. In other words, they've, they've just gone to a new church and they're still in that phase when everything is wonderful. He's a lot better than the last man, you know. He's great. Um, he's wonderful. He's refreshing. Just what we needed. Sadly, sometimes, uh, and I trust it never does for Nathan, that honeymoon period can come to an end. Uh, and then it's, what a disappointment. He's human after all. The same thing can happen in marriages, can't it? Um, there, there's a couple, they're, they're wonderfully in love. Um, they go off on their honeymoon. This is prior to the days when people anticipated their honeymoons in the way they do these days. Um, but they went off on their honeymoon and they went somewhere exotic if they could possibly afford it. Uh, and it was all beaches and prepared meals. Uh, and then the honeymoon's over, they come to the reality of married life which is an alarm clock going off in the morning, housekeeping to do, shopping to do, work to do, uh, and the, the relationship can possibly start to go through a time of difficulty, uh, and people need to work their way through that and, uh, and talk to one another and, and sort things out, whether that's the, the pastor's honeymoon period or the honeymoon of a newly married couple. Um, it doesn't need to be the end of something beautiful. It can be the beginning of something even more beautiful. But God's question to these people is particularly directed towards a, a very small group of them. Remember, they've been in exile for 70 years. So uh, when God says through Haggai, who is left who saw this house in its former glory? There'd only be a handful of hands that would go up. Most of them had been born in exile, but there were two groups of them. There were the people who had gone into exile as young men and women. And 70 years is a long time during which your memories can become very gilded. Did it ever rain in the summer when you were a child? No, it didn't. It jolly well did. You have a look at the, the, the records for the day, but we remember the golden days. We remember the days when we were playing and, and it was all kind of wonderful. And we filter out the days when it poured with rain and it was cold and we couldn't do anything. We, we have a, a tendency to kind of sanitize things um, and our memories are often not accurate at all. But then there were the people who listened to the stories of those now old people. And they said, ah, you don't know what he was like when we were in our own land, when we had our own king, when we had our own temple, when we went up to worship the Lord in Jerusalem before those that took us captive started requiring of a song saying, sing us one of the songs of Zion. Uh, and we wept and we hung our harps uh, and we said, how can we sing the Lord's song in a strange land? So you've got two groups of people, those with a kind of gilded memory uh, and those with a legend that they've heard. Uh, and God brings them down to reality by saying to them, who is left 
who saw this former glory. And the reason he does it is that these people need strengthening because it's so easy for them to begin to grumble and complain. It's one of the features, isn't it? We've been going through um, Exodus together, and it just stuns me every time I read the book of Exodus how short a memory span these people have. You know, they, they, they've just come out of Egypt. They've seen the mighty miracles of the Lord. Uh, they're, they're tripping over miracles in the wilderness. And yet, the moment they face a new crisis, what's their default position? Moan. Complain. Exodus 14, 11, they said to Moses, Is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you've taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done to us, bringing us out of Egypt? Uh, and again, Exodus 17, 3, um, why did you bring us up out of Egypt? But the one that strikes me most is Numbers 11. Now the rabble that was among them had a strong craving, and the people of Israel also wept again and said, oh, that we had meat to eat. Remember the fish we ate in Egypt that cost nothing, the cucumbers, the melons, the leeks and the onions and the garlic. These are the same people who were crying out to the Lord because of the burden of the taskmaster's whip. They've forgotten the whip and remembered cucumbers, of all things. But that's what they do. And, and it becomes a, a feature. It's a feature of our own human nature in some ways. Paul has to address it. In 1 Corinthians 10, he says, we must not put Christ to the test of some of them did when they were destroyed by serpents, nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Or when he writes to the Philippians, he says, do all things without grumbling or disputing. Just so that we understand it, it's not just James on his, sorry, uh, Paul on his own. James 5.9, do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. Or 1 Peter 4.9, Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. These people are already prioritizing themselves over the work of God, and they are already beginning to complain. They, this temple to them, that's why God asks the question, because he knows the answer. It's already being muttered amongst them. Is this temple really worth building? Is it worth all this effort? Well, this, this is a kind of, this is a bungalow compared with the massive great building that Solomon built. It's not worth the bother. And God has a message for them. Oh, yes, it is. You have not begun to understand the purposes that I'm fulfilling. So what we find is that there is a first fresh word from God. Let me just repeat that. There is a first fresh word from God. Because although these prophecies are delivered by Haggai, they are God's word. And if you just look carefully at the passage, um, you, you'll see that declares the Lord comes twice in chapter 2 and verse 4. These are all chapter 2, so I won't repeat that. Um, four times in verses 6, 7, 8, and 9 says the Lord of hosts. 
I twice in 2.7, but also in 2.4, 2.5, 2.6, and 2.9. My, 2.5, mine, 2.8, twice. That's God speaking. Uh, and if you add it all up, there are 15 times when in this short chapter we're told it is God who is speaking, and only once that we're told it's Haggai. Haggai is simply the messenger. You remember John the Baptist um, he, he downplays his ministry, doesn't he? Jesus exalts him and, and, and says that of all born of women, there's not been one like John. He, he, he's, he's a great prophet of God. But what, is, what does John say? Me, I'm nothing. I'm the voice of one crying in the wilderness. I'm not fit to, to, to take his shoes off for him. I must decrease. He must increase. Uh, and that's the that's the role, isn't it, of the servant of God. The servant of God is not there to draw attention to himself. He's there to draw attention to God. He's merely the instrument that God uses. Perhaps the, the clearest reference to that is, is the, probably the most famous of them all, 2 Timothy 3, 16 to 17. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. All Scripture is breathed out by God. You remember in the uh, Genesis story of the, the creation of man, uh, God makes a clay model, uh, and then He breathes His Spirit into it. It's the same word. He breathes His Spirit into it, uh, and, and the mannequin becomes a man. He's full of the life of God. Uh, and what we need always to remember when we're handling Scripture is that this is the very breath of God. So, preachers, individuals witnessing to other people, if we're, if we're solidly proclaiming what Scripture proclaims, then we can do so with absolute authority. This is why the Old Testament prophets were able to say, thus says the Lord. Uh, and we can do that. We can have an assurance. If we're expressing our own opinions about things, well, that's a different thing. Um, my opinions sometimes are right, sometimes are wrong. Um, depends who you ask, whether they'll tell you they're more often right or more often wrong. Um, but they're, they're not always right. But, but God's Word is absolutely, utterly reliable. It's the breathed-out life of God. It's able to make men wise unto salvation. It's powerful and effective. It, it, it can cut through all the, the, the kind of arguments that, that unbelievers bring up. The Word of God is special. It's powerful. It's effective. And so, verse 6, this is what the Lord Almighty says. That's the, the tone of, of Haggai. It is God addressing His grumbling, self-centered people. The message is all about the fact that whatever things look like, however discouraging they may seem, they're not as bad as these people think. The simple reason is that it's God's work and He will prosper it. And He has a plan that is absolutely amazing. Uh, and so, in, in this first vision, the first thing he does is to reassure them 
of the presence of God. It's interesting how series blend together, don't they? And again, in the Exodus series, um, you'll remember how uh, Moses at one point, God said, right, you can go up to the promised land. I'll give it you. It's yours. Milk and honey, the whole lot. I'll defeat your enemies for you, but I'm not going with you. Too dangerous for me to go because you're a sinful people. I might break out against you and destroy you. Uh, And Moses, with God-given wisdom, says, if you don't go, don't send us. Because the key thing is the presence of God. I was at a a, a meeting uh, some while ago, and and, um, the the speaker was speaking about heaven and and was talking about all the things, and, and, and somebody said at the end, haven't you missed the fact that the thing about heaven is that Jesus is there? Whoops. Yeah, maybe I did. But that's, that's what it's all about, isn't it? To be with the Lord. Um, the, the promise to the thief on paradise, today you'll be with me in paradise. And, and I think the in paradise is less important than the me. You're going to be with me. So Haggai 2 and verse 4, now be strong, O Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Be strong, O Joshua, son of Josedach, the high priest. Be strong, all you people of the land, declares the Lord for I am with you. Work, for I am with you, declares the Lord. Uh, Similar period in history, Um, Nehemiah was was building the walls of of Jerusalem, and the people worked, didn't they? They they, they had a heart and a mind to work, and one of the reasons was that they were convinced that this was the work of God. Uh, And that's the only antidote I know to getting weary in the work of God, because the work of God can be wearying. It, it can be wearying for those of you that, that teach in junior church. You know, you, you seem to be on this cycle, don't you, of, of telling the same stories uh, over and over again, and, and, and maybe not seeing all of the, the, the joy that you want to see. It, it, it will become weary at times for, for Nathan preaching to us week after week and, and, and looking out and seeing sometimes a sea of blank faces and wishing somebody would smile and say, I'm listening, I can hear what you're saying. Um, it, it'll become wearying for Steve going in and doing work in schools and so on. The work of God can be wearying. But the, the solution to that, isn't it, is work because I'm with you. It's what Jesus said to the disciples in the Great Commission. Go into all the world. Make disciples of all nations. Why? Because, lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Wherever we go, our Savior goes with us. And that's the first thing that he wants them to know. You can be strong. You can work because God is with you because God is with us. The the second is the purpose of God, and that's there in verse 9. The latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts, and in this place I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. Well, this temple was never going to match the temple that King Solomon had built. It needed to wait a long time. It needed to wait for someone who wasn't even really a Jew, but only a half-Jew, 
uh, known to history as Herod the Great, who had a vision to build uh, a great temple, and um, he, he did some amazing things to do it. He, he kind of increased the size of the, the mountain upon which he wanted to put it, uh, and he began working. He died in 4 AD. The work itself was not completed until 60 AD. So all that time after his death, it was still going on. Interestingly, it only lasted 10 years. Completed 60 AD, destroyed utterly by the Romans, 70 AD. But that was the beginning of the fulfillment of this promise. When walking through Jerusalem one day, the disciples said to Jesus, as he came out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what wonderful stones, what wonderful buildings. Israel reference coming up. You can now go under the Western Wall uh, and you can get down to what was street level in the days of Jesus. Uh, and you can see those stones. Now, I, I don't know what you're like, but I, I, I'm a bear of little imagination. Um, distances, weights don't mean a lot to me. So um, if you tell me something is, is, is 18 foot tall, I'll say, well, that's about three robins standing on top of each other in a bit. Um, it, I, 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 can, I can cope with that. So the stones, the average stone there weighs between two and eight tons. That's the same weight as an adult bull elephant. I can get my brain around that one. It's the same weight as an adult bull elephant. The largest so far uncovered, and I say that so far uncovered because they're still uncovering them, is estimated to weigh between 520 to 600 tons, and it's the largest cut stone in the world. And some of us were touching it last week. If you want to put that into context, a double-decker bus weighs 12 and a half tons, vaguely. So this single rock, conservatively, weighs more than 41 buses, or if you prefer, 75 full-grown elephants. I think that's big. I think that's heavy. But God still hasn't finished with his plans. He hasn't finished. Because that isn't the final temple. And I'm, I'm not here, I, your theology on this may not coincide with my own, um, but I, I'm, I'm not thinking in terms of any fresh construction of stone that may be built in Jerusalem, what's often called Ezekiel's temple. God is building another temple. God is building an ultimate temple. 1 Peter 2, 5 to 6. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For as it stands in Scripture, behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So we're living stones. 
Jesus is the, the cornerstone. What is God building with all of those stones? It, it, the stones that were in Herod's temple, um, nobody still knows how they got them there because they're too heavy even for modern machinery to lift. What's God building? Well, Revelation 3.12, the one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it, and I will write on him the name of my God, the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven, and my own new name. I'll make him a pillar in the temple. Revelation eleven nineteen. Then God's temple in heaven was opened, and the ark of his covenant was seen within his temple. There were flashes of lightning, rumbles, peals of thunder, an earthquake, and heavy hail. Revelation 21, 22, and I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. There are so many images in Scripture, aren't there, of, of the church. It's the body of Christ, and, and, and we're familiar with all of these, but here's one of them. God is building a temple. A, a temple is two things. It's a place where God has allowed his name to dwell. That was, that was what he said to, to David and, and fulfilled in the days of Solomon. My name will dwell there. Well, of course, we know that, that our God is, is, is omnipresent. He's everywhere. The contrast with Satan in the book of Job. God says to Satan, where have you been? And Satan says, I've been going to and fro on the earth. Hither and thither, here, one minute, there, somewhere else. God is not like that. There is no place on earth where God isn't. It doesn't matter where you are in this world. The last time I was under the, the, the Western Wall, um, the, the guide that was taking us round told us that um, we were at a particular point there and they said, you're in the holiest spot on God's earth now because you're at the nearest you could ever be physically to the Holy of Holies, which would have been on the Temple Mount. Uh, and it was just at the moment that our daughter Miriam was going into surgery. Um, so slightly tongue-in-cheek, I texted her and said, apparently I'm at the nearest place to God on earth at the moment, so I thought I'd pray for you. But she knew it was tongue-in-cheek because she knew that I could have been in an aeroplane up in the air, I could have been in Wem, I could have been in Cardiff, I could have been in, in Timbuktu, it wouldn't have mattered where I was. I was still near to God. I can't be any nearer to God than having God the Holy Spirit dwelling within me. But it's the place that God has particularly said, I will dwell there. And if his people are being built into a temple, it's because God is dwelling in their midst. And the second thing is that it's a place of worship. It's a place where God's people worship and adore their God. And there's so much of that in the book of Revelation, isn't there, of God's people bowing down, falling before his face and so on, and worshiping him. And then thirdly, there is a second fresh word from God. Three months have now passed and God begins to speak once again. This time it's a more restricted message. This message came to Haggai, not through Haggai as we read in chapter 1 and verse 1 and chapter 2 and verse 1. There is a difference there. To Haggai, not 
through Haggai. So it appears that this was something that God was speaking especially to his prophet about. He asks questions. They're rhetorical questions. Um, they're, they're to do with, with contamination and holiness. Uh, and the, the lesson is simply this. Uh, you, you remember the, the questions. Um, if, if, if something contaminated touches something that is holy, does the contaminated thing become holy or the holy thing become contaminated? The question is put um, both ways round. Uh, and the answer is, is very simple. Holiness is an isolated virtue. It's not communicable. You can't catch holiness. You can't catch Christianity. It's not like a disease. But sin is a contamination, and you can catch it. It is communicable. It's far easier to spread evil than it is to spread virtue. Uh, we, we could use our own kind of more familiar examples, couldn't we? I mean, if you are storing your apples... Um, then you don't want to put an apple that's got any kind of brown on it touching the other apples because it'll spread, won't it? But if you've got a, a whole tray of rotten apples, just try putting a good one in the middle and, and wait and watch for the wonderful effect as they all become good. It won't work. Just your good one will become rotten. It, it, it's, it's a reality, isn't it, that we're aware of. So what's the application? I think it's simply this. These people were gazing back in, nostal in nostalgia uh, at long-ago days and making comparisons between before and after instead of heeding the Word of God to them in their own day and generation. Uh, and there can be a temptation to do that, can't there? Uh, it's, I, I, I don't see it any longer. I don't hear it any longer. Um, but there was certainly for a long time um, in Wales a, a nostalgia for the days of revival. You know, it was, ah, if only. Uh, and it was a looking backwards at something rather than a looking forward to see, well, what is God going to do now? What is God going to do next? Not what did he do 50 years ago or 60 years ago or 100 years ago. Uh, and certainly when I started preaching in the valleys, there were still the people who said, oh, I remember this church when. The first church I ever preached in sat 750 people. There were three of us. One in the congregation, one in the pipe organ behind me and me in the middle. And I wanted a cake stand so that I could revolve around and speak to both of them kind of simultaneously. I, I was utterly lost. I didn't know what to do. And, of course, I was told, oh, I remember the days when you had to come early to get a seat here. Well, that's nostalgia. What is God going to do? How are we going to work knowing that God is with us? What, what's his plan for the future? God is already changing circumstances for the better. Shortage is, is, is being replaced with plenty. I can't believe that the, the current economic crisis, for instance, rests alone on the shoulders of the Conservative Party or Liz Trump or quasi Quartain, um, but with a nation that's turned its back on God. We have not sought the face of our God. We're a church that has silenced the prophetic voice 
This is something, it's a quotation from a man called Bob Fial. He says, this strikes a powerful chord in our contemporary world. The attempt to silence the prophetic voice through obsessive political correctness, which will not allow sin to be called sin, nor permit prophetic words about the uniqueness of Christ. Does that resonate with you? I think that is the world in which we live, isn't it? Where um, there's a, a refusal to allow the church to proclaim what it truly believes, to proclaim its, its ethics and its morals, to proclaim its exclusivity in Christ. It's not good. We need to be lights shining in the darkness. I don't mean that we, we go around kind of deliberately antagonizing people for the sheer fun of it, but we should not be silent concerning the work of God. In chapter 2 and verse 17, God points something out to them. He said, I struck you and all the products of your toil with blight and with mildew and with hail, yet you did not turn to me, declares the Lord. One of the reasons sometimes that, that things are wrong, and maybe that's the reason in, in the world at the moment with, with the economic crises and all that we're seeing around us, is that God is saying, look, you've turned your back on me. You're not seeking my face. And as long as you do it, you can pour your life into to building and, and when you think you've got 20 measures there'll only be 10 when you go to the vat to draw 50 measures there's only 20 all the work of your hands will be struck with blight and mildew remember God saying you, you've collected all your money and you've put it in a bag with holes in it as busy as you're saving it's all pouring out of the bottom but God says in verse 19 but from this day on I will bless you this is where the hope begins to come into this chapter. And there's a second word from God that month to Haggai. And it's to do with the shaking of the nations. Now this was partially, literally fulfilled in the physical world around them. Let me just read you some words from James Montgomery Boyce. He says, moreover the nations were shaken. The Ionian Greeks who had expanded eastward on the western shore of Asia Minor had been subjected to the rule of Persia by Cyrus the Great about 540 BC. But in 501 BC, about 20 years after the date of Haggai's prophecy, they rebelled against Persia, bringing on a Persian invasion of Greece about a decade later. Darius was king at this time. He led a great army, but he was defeated at Marathon in 490 BC. I won't go on with it. You know the story of the, um, the brave um, Spartans um, who held the, uh, the path and, and, and so on, but were eventually betrayed. The world was shaken. The, the, the world of their day was shaken. So what's the message of Haggai for us? Haggai's direct contribution to the New Testament is one quotation. You're probably aware that the New Testament is littered with quotations. If, if you want to read it, you'll find umpteen quotations from Isaiah. You'll find umpteen from the book of Psalms. And, and you'll find a scattering from all of, well, not all, but most of the Old Testament books are cited in the New Testament. There's one, one reference to Haggai. He's not alone in that, but there's just one. 
and it comes in Hebrews. Let me read it for you. At that time, his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised, yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken, that is, things that have been made, in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, he goes on, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. The writer to the Hebrews looks right back to the days of Haggai, and he says in Haggai's day, there was the first partial fulfillment of this. The whole known world was, was kind of put in a bag and shaken, uh, and then just kind of thrown out in the way that one might shake dice out of a cup. But he says, but you know, it's going to happen again. But this time, not on a uh, on a scale that covered most of the Middle East. This time, it's going to be on a universal scale. God is going to shake the heavens and the earth. And it's all in preparation for the creation of the new heaven and the new earth. Now, that's a terrifying prospect, isn't it? That, that everything is, is going to be shaken and things are going to come tumbling down. Just as Jesus said of the, the temple of Herod, not one stone will be left upon another. All the things that people have put their trust in, all the things that they valued, all the things that are precious to them will all be shaken by God. But he turns and he says, but don't worry, Christian. Don't worry, don't worry. You belong to that which cannot be shaken. The only thing in the whole of the universe, planets may come and go. Mountains may fall into the sea. But the kingdom of our Lord Jesus Christ cannot even be ruffled. It stands and it will stand for the whole of eternity Therefore, he says, let's worship God with reverence and awe. We may be tempted, if we're readers, and I, I, I hope we are, if we're readers of church history and we're readers particularly of revivals, we might think, ah, to live in the days of the Wesleyan revival, or ah, to live in the days of Spurgeon when thousands came to listen to, to this this untutored preacher in, in London, ah, to be there in, in the days of, of the, the Welsh revival of 1904 or the Hebridean revival or the lowest off revival or any revival the New England, anyone you like, ah, to have been there then. God's message to Haggai and Haggai's message to us is, don't compare the present with the past. Embrace the present Take strength, work because God is with you, and anticipate a future which is more incredibly wonderful than you can possibly imagine. The best is yet to come, and we will be part of it because we are already citizens of a kingdom 
that cannot, cannot, cannot be shaken.